church makes the place seem a little bit more empty than, than normal. But I'm sure it gives some of you all some, some more space to enjoy and spread out a bit. Well, I'm glad we're here again uh, this morning. Um, it's, been, um, it's been a week. And I'm sure everybody's week has been a little different, but praise God that we're here able to rise once again to give him praise, to hear his word, and to enjoy him all the more. If you are new or visiting, I'm Pastor Trevor, the pastor here, um, and I'm glad you could join us today. And we are in our series of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 21, so if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles there, your app, or if you need a Bible, there should be one laying around the seats around you. And if you find one that's an ESV um, that looks like it's been worn a bit, it, it's probably mine. I'm looking for it, um, so let me know if you find it. Um, if you borrowed it and want to keep it, let me know that too. You can have it. I'll just get a new one. Um, and if I've lost it, it will be the excuse I've been looking for to get a new Bible to use for my preaching. But just, you know, if you do find it, you know, it's the Lord's will. I'll just keep using it. But anyway, we are in Matthew chapter 21, and we are in verses 23, 46. And I misspoke last week. I think last week I said we were in the back half of Matthew 21. We were actually in the middle of Matthew 21 last week. Now we're on the back half of Matthew 21. And today we will finish uh, chapter 21 of Matthew. Um, And in this passage, we are going to see how uh, the religious leaders of Jerusalem are refusing. They reject the authority of Christ. They reject the authority of Jesus. But yet in that, he's going to offer an opportunity for repentance to them. While at the same time giving them a harsh warning as well as a harsh judgment in not doing so. So we are going to break this passage down in three sections, and we are going to read each section as we come to each one. The first section is going to be verses 23 through 27. Uh, Then we're going to tackle 28 through 32, and then we are going to end with the big parable, the second parable of our text today, uh, verses 33 through 46. But before we read from Scripture, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. Thank you for the joy that you have blessed us with, knowing that we are forgiven and justified before you, purely by the blood of your Son, nothing to do with us. We come naked and poor before you, but yet you clothe us in white. As you wash us with your word, you sanctify us by the blood of your Son, by the Lamb of God. We thank you for that, Father. We just ask that this morning that you will Speak to each and every one of us that you will help us submit ourselves to your authority, to your word, to your spirit. And as your spirit that dwells within each one of us that calls upon your son's name, that we will be edified, that we will be built up, we will be made complete and mature, and more in the image of your son. And in doing so, Father, we can enjoy you more and glorify all those, glorify you amongst those that we are with, Father, during the week. We ask all this, Father, for your glory, by the power of the spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, after Jesus entered the temple courts, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Where did John's baptism come from? From heaven or from people? They discussed this among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from people, we fear the crowd, for they all consider John to be a prophet. 
So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So these this delegation, so to speak, they're coming with their authority. And let's look at their authority first. This group of people, and Matthew calls them the chief priests and the elders of the people, kind of like the lay leaders of Jerusalem. And both of these groups are members of the Sanhedrin Council, the ruling religious authority in Jerusalem. So this is like the top of the top of the religious authority. It's the highest authority in Jerusalem. Their membership alone assumes an inherent authority given to them by God because they are dealing with religious matters. They are dealing with matters of God by dealing with the people of God, the Jewish nation. And they come to Jesus as he was teaching. As he is teaching, they come up and they interrupt him. And by doing so, when you interrupt somebody who is teaching, you're kind of demonstrating some form of authority there because you feel like you have the right, the authority, the power to interrupt him. And so they interrupt Jesus and they give two questions. What authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? See, one, by them asking by what authority, clearly the authority is not from them, right? So they, are, they have their authority that's in front of all these people, and they're challenging it with Jesus' authority. And they're wondering by what authority is he doing all these healings? Remember, we, we read how he cleaned out the temple courts, and the blind and the lame were brought in, and he healed them. And who gave you this authority? Because in first century um, Israel, if you were teaching, if you were considered a rabbi, you had to have another rabbi who gave you the authority to teach, like Rabbi Hillel, what you were the disciple of. That's how, like, Paul was a disciple of a rabbi, and he had a rabbi that gave him the power to go do the work of uh, the Jewish council and so forth. But Jesus isn't associated with one, and, and they know this. And, and so they're challenging him. So let's look at his authority. See, recognizing this question to be a loaded question, Jesus counters these chief priests and these elders. See, if Jesus answers them directly, and he says, the Father has given me the authority, I'm his son, they can accuse him of blasphemy on the spot. And though Jesus isn't really hiding who he is at this point, right, final week, final week of his life, we only got a few days left before he's crucified, it's still not quite the time for him to be taken away. And Jesus recognizes that these authorities, they're not innocent in their question. This isn't one of mere curiosity, like a child who wants to learn something. These, these authorities know exactly what they are doing. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. They're either hoping that by his refusal not to answer the question, to avoid being charged with blasphemy, that he will leave. Or by citing another authority other than God, they could just simply reject it with their own authority because they are the ruling authority on religious matters. So Jesus, being wise in this and being the Son of God, counters with a question. And this question to them is about the ministry of John the Baptist. He asks, was the authority for John's ministry from heaven or was it from man? See, how they answer the question is important. Because the ministry of John the Baptist is explicitly connected with the ministry of Jesus. Right? John the Baptist prepared the way for the ministry of Jesus. Matthew has made that clear. The other Gospels make this clear. 
Matthew clearly shows in his gospel how the two preach the same message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, how they shared that message, how Jesus carried that baton after John was beheaded and after he was imprisoned. And in the gospel of John in the first chapter, we have the testimony of John the Baptist saying, look, there's Jesus, the very Jesus is standing in the temple courts. There's Jesus, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, the one who will take away the sins of the world. And so they recognize that whoever gave the authority to John inherently gives it to Jesus. And so these, this delegation debates among themselves how they should answer the question. If they say it's from heaven or God, then why are they not submitting to Jesus? After all, they're the religious authority in Jerusalem. They're in that position supposedly because God gave them that position. And if Jesus is teaching and preaching and healing by the authority of God, why are they themselves not submitting to it? Why do they have a problem with what Jesus is doing? So they, so they can't say, well, from heaven. But if they say from man, then the crowds are going to be upset because the crowds hold John the Baptist with reverence. They saw him as a prophet. And to say that's from man would mean that he wasn't a prophet and that his ministry was for naught. And they didn't want to cause a riot. Remember, it's busy there, right? Passion week, uh, Passover is coming. They're sacrificing Thousands, hundreds of thousands of lambs. You know, we talked about there's probably several million people in the city about this time. Several, tens of thousands in and around the temple right now. So they don't want to cause a, a riot or a panic. So ultimately, rather than concede the truth, they would rather face embarrassment. And they answer with, we don't know. And as such, by doing so, their actual intentions, their real motives become clear. Their hypocrisy has been openly revealed not just only to Jesus, who already knew it, but one, to themselves, hopefully, but also to the crowds to whom Jesus was teaching. The people that they came, when they came to make a scene, Jesus turned the tables on them, and now their hypocrisy has been revealed to all. This delegation that struggled with the authority of Jesus is not much different than those who struggle with the authority of Jesus today or with his word. We see it now even with those who are part of the religious elite, those who are leaders within the church who are walking away from the faith. Uh, just recently, we have two examples of that. Joshua Harris, who is the, was, is the author of Kiss Dating Goodbye, who was a form, is a former megachurch pastor, openly just said, I'm done with the faith, walking away, doesn't believe it anymore because he, he can't handle what the Bible teaches. Or Marty Sampson, singer and songwriter of Hillsong, um, been leading worship for Hillsong and writing songs for them for well over a decade now, and then last, just a couple weeks ago, comes down and says, I don't get it, I can't understand it. He, he can't answer basic questions that the Bible answers because he doesn't like how it makes him feel. He, it makes him uncomfortable, so he's done with the faith, and he's trying to find God elsewhere. See, this group of religious leaders, they heard the teaching of Jesus. They saw his miracles, but they didn't like any of it in part because it encroached on their lifestyles. It turned it upside down. It undermined their identity and the way things were. They were comfortable. They didn't need anyone, even if it's God himself, to change it. Remember the Israelites' perception of the Messiah. They were expecting him to come and to purge the temple of all foreigners and Gentiles. That's what they wanted. They wanted Israel to be freed from Roman oppression and to be the top dog once again and to be truly Jewish. But when Jesus came in and he cleared out the temple courts, 
who did he allow in? The unclean, those who were sick, those who were blind, Gentiles. He allowed them all in to be blessed, to be ministered by the Messiah. This goes against their expectations, and they, they don't like it. It's unsettling. The thing is, when, when Jesus comes into your life, when he calls you into his flock, he's going to clean house in your soul, and it's not going to be comfortable. It's never comfortable when you clean house, is it? There's always more work to be done than you expect there to be done. And sometimes the things that you need to throw away, you don't want to throw away. But if you're cleaning house, you need to throw it away. It's going to be uncomfortable, especially if you're an addict or if you're a glutton for food or alcohol. Or perhaps you're a lustful person, whether you are gay or straight, or if you have a constant need to be liked and approved by others. God's word, Jesus Christ, when he comes into your life, he is going to wreck it. Not carelessly, not recklessly, but skillfully. Like somebody doing a renovation on a house, but it's for your good. We we have to remember this. The joy of the gospel isn't solely that we are forgiven. Right? It's not just that you're forgiven. It's not that you're justified. These things, our justification, our forgiveness, is a means to the end of which we enjoy in the gospel. They lead us to the source of the joy of the gospel. And that source is God himself. Because forgiveness and justification is not where the gospel ends. Forgiveness and our justification being made right before God brings us into a relationship with God, allows God to dwell within us, allows us to experience his presence. That's the joy that exists. It's not just that you're forgiven. Because you're forgiven, you get to know God. You get to be in his presence. It's knowing God, enjoying God. That's the source of the gospel. That's our chief end of why we exist. It's to enjoy him. So why would we not want to submit to his authority. Again, though, it's, it's not going to be comfortable, especially when we live in the world that we live in. So let's not reject his authority as these members, this delegation, tries to do. Let's allow God to come into our lives, into our homes, and say, this needs to go. This needs to come. This needs to be rearranged. You need these colors and not those. And that's not easy. Right? I mean, when, you, when somebody comes in and gives you an opinion on how to do things, quite often, you're like, ah, you know, I don't like that color. I mean, I think we've experienced some of that here, just when we've renovated the inside of this church. Right? I'm sure there were disagreements that happened or opinions shared or somebody said, I like this color, and somebody even quietly might have been like, you know, I probably wouldn't have done it that way. But that's, but I mean, it looks beautiful, so it worked out. Like, I know for me, for, as a fact, I had my doubts on some of the colors in here. No offense, Sheila. But she's smart in this. She's good on this. And so I I leaned into that, but was it comfortable for me? And I'm glad I did, right? Initially, there's that hesitation, but I'm glad I did. I've been rewarded by allowing her to do her thing and me keeping my mouth shut and trusting in that. And I thank her for that. We have to let God do that, but it's not always easy. Let's go ahead and read 28 through 32. Jesus goes on, he goes right into a parable, and we're going to read two parables, and this is the first of the two. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. The boy answered, I will not. But later he had a change of heart and went. The father went to the other son and said the same thing. 
This boy answered, I will, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did his father's will? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Tax collectors, prostitutes, will go ahead of you into the kingdom of God. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe. Although you saw this, you did not later change your minds and believe him. This parable of two sons frames a question for us, and it provides an opportunity. It reminds us that an opportunity exists. The father goes to the first son and tells him to do something. The son says no, but later changes his mind and actually does it. The second one says, yeah, I'll do it, but he doesn't do it. And which of the two did the will of the father? The answer is rather obvious, and the delegation, they answer correctly. They say, well, the first one. And the parable points out an issue with these religious authorities. Though the first one refused initially, wanted to do what they wanted to do, what he wanted to do, this first son, he eventually came around and he obeyed. Despite doing what they wanted, they, they, they knew what the father's will was, but they still kept doing what they wanted to do. But eventually, they repented. They turned. The second one, however, from the get-go, claimed he was willing to obey. Claimed that he will do the will of the father. He professed with his mouth obedience, but his actions denied that. Faithful, faithfulness to the promise. And as such, a second son is exposed as a hypocrite. Now, who might the second son here represent? If we know anything about the parables of Jesus, quite often he uses characters in the parables to represent people who are often either around him or people who actually exist. Right? They represent people in, in reality and in life. So who do you think here is the hypocrite? And who do you think the first son is? And to be unsure, this is a beautiful thing, Jesus doesn't leave it really for you to ponder. He, he answers the question for us in verse 31, 32. This is part of the beauty of Scripture. Scripture often explains itself. You want to know the answer to the question in Scripture, just keep reading or read more of Scripture, and eventually you'll connect the dots. Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they are the first son. They will enter into the kingdom before they were will. Either this religious delegation, these who are the highest authority, they're not going to get into the kingdom, not before these unclean, sinful people get into the kingdom. And why is that? Because they repented. They turned from their sins. They embraced the will of the Father, not just by professing it, but by obeying it. These who are supposedly unclean, dead in their sin, rejected by God and by society and by these religious authorities, they will enter into the kingdom because they repented. They saw John the Baptist, and they believed. But yet those who from the get-go, who have dedicated their entire lives to the will of the Father, to the temple, they will not, because they rejected the authority from heaven. They rejected John the Baptist in his ministry. For in the kingdom, there is no room for hypocrisy. In the kingdom of heaven, as one commentator put it eloquently, performance takes priority over promise, meaning profession of faith, absence of actions is futile. You can say with your mouth all you want that Jesus is Lord, but if your actions are not there, it means nothing. 
Or in the words of James, in his epistle, faith without works is dead, meaning it's unable to save. It is useless. It's not that saving faith, listen, let's not get confused or hung up here. It's not that saving faith comes by works, but the fruit of saving faith is works. We've got to be careful here because sometimes you can have the works, but without the faith, right? If you think the works are, is what saves you, because it's not, that's the case. You, don't ha- you might not have the faith, but if you say you have the faith, but you don't have the work to prove it, to show it, do you even have the faith? There's no room for hypocrisy. But yet in this parable that Jesus gives, it is a warning, it is a judgment, because he's telling these religious authorities, these who you think shouldn't be in the kingdom, they're going to go in before you, not you. There's an opportunity, though. There is an opportunity. And this opportunity is available to all of us. Our past and our current standing, our past does not have to determine our future or current standing with God. If we so desire, we can turn from our ways, we can repent and be like the first son who eventually changed his mind and repented and did the will of the Father. Even these religious authorities who at this time are hearing Jesus' teaching, perhaps now they can. Maybe some of them did. were like, oh man, he's right. And Maybe they went from the second son and became the first son and did the will of the Father. And we know that not everyone in the Sanhedrin council um, rejected Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, right? The person who sought the body of Jesus and asked him to be buried and according to the custom and laws of Israel, he was a member of the Sanhedrin council. And then we got Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. We don't think, I don't think he was a member of the Sanhedrin council, but he was a Pharisee. We know that he himself believed in Jesus as well. So there's always opportunity, even for these men here. And that's the crazy thing about God. His grace always abounds. Our sin is grace. Our sin is great, but his mercy is more. See, he's merciful. He's slow to anger. His love abounds, and he is always faithful. So every moment that we breathe, every moment that you have breath in your lungs is another moment for you to go from that first son to that second son. You always have that opportunity to change your mind and do the will of the Father. Because God doesn't take it just on your lips. He doesn't take you for your word. He knows us better than that. He takes us by our heart. And our heart, our works, will reflect the condition and the motives of our hearts. But do not delay, because you never know when that final breath is going to happen. So Jesus doesn't stop with this parable. He goes on to drive the stake home, and he tells another parable that one acts as a judgment against the selfishness and hypocrisy that exists within Israel against God, but it also doubles as a strong warning. Verses 33 through 46, Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a pit for its wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went on a journey. When the harvest time was near, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his portion of the crop. But the tenants seized his slaves. They beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. 
But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will utterly destroy those evil men. Then he will lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his portion at the harvest. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. For this reason, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. The one on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds because the crowds regarded him as a prophet. So let's look at the parable of the tenants. The master here is clearly God, and the vineyard represents Israel, as it often does, especially in Old Testament literature. The vineyard is Israel. And the tenants, we know who they are. Jesus just told us they're the delegation. They have responsibility for, for tending, for stewarding this vineyard for the nation of Israel. And when it came time for the fruit of Israel to be harvested, God sent his slaves to collect it. Ultimately, he sent his prophets. That's who the slaves represent. But the tenants killed these prophets, one prophet after another. Finally, the master, God, sends his son, thinking, they want to touch my son. So you touch my son, it's like touching me. There's a clear difference between slaves and the son of the master and the son of God. But yet even he, they killed. And it, the son here is clearly Jesus. And though Jesus is telling the parable, he's doing a little bit of prophecy here. Not new prophecy. He's talked about his death. He's talked about the need for him to be crucified and killed so forth. But here we see the son who's thrown outside of the vineyard. In just a few days, Jesus is going to be taken outside of the city to be killed. So the same thing is going to happen to Jesus as it has happened to the son in this parable. And this is exactly the accusation the deacon, Stephen, the first martyr of the church. This is what gets him martyred. He makes this claim to the Jewish authorities with Paul standing by before Paul was converted. In Acts 7, 51-53, he says, you stubborn people, right? He's saying this to the Jews. He's saying this to religious authorities. He's saying a little bit, perhaps, not, I guess he's saying it just as explicitly as Jesus is. But he says, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Like your ancestors did. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold long ago the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So he just blames them. You murdered the son. You, bl- you murdered Jesus. You received the law by decrees given by angels, but you did not obey it. And after that, they take Stephen and they start stoning him and he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. And Paul is over there on the side watching it all happen. But yet here, back to where we are with Jesus a few days before his crucifixion, the delegation hasn't quite connected the dots yet that this is them. Right? Because Jesus asks them point blank. What do you think is going to happen when the owner comes? What do you think he will do? 
This is kind of a similar tactic that the prophet Nathan did to David. After David um, committed the sin with that, you know, adultery of Bathsheba, murdered her husband, and then Nathan tells him a story uh, about somebody who's abusive towards the sheep and, and asks David, what do you think you should do? And David makes a judgment. He's like, well, that's you. But there's a difference here. There's a difference in response between these two groups of people. See, these, this delegation, like, well, they're disgusted by the response. They do the same thing with David. They say, clearly, the tenant should be put to death, and it should be given to somebody else. Somebody else. But yet, after this is revealed to them, we don't see them lamenting or repenting like David was. David was broken over the news that he had committed such sin. But these, these Pharisees, these chief priests, no. If anything, they get more angry, and they want to arrest Jesus. They still act wickedly. And by doing so, Jesus reveals the judgment of their hypocrisy. In verse 42, he quotes Psalm 118, 22, 23, where it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he's being rejected currently by these elites. So he's bringing that judgment on, on, on them right then and there if they don't repent. And afterwards, he will be discarded by his master's son. But God will vindicate him through the resurrection. Though he gets rejected, he gets put outside the city, God vindicates him through the resurrection, and that stone that was once rejected by these very men will be the cornerstone. And this cornerstone, this stone, will be the very stone that will judge them, that will break them, that will crush them. It's also the stone that people will use to praise God when they look upon it. Though this stone was rejected, they will look at it and marvel at what God has done. And Jesus doesn't leave any room for confusion here. He's explicit to them. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't just kind of like, well, I'll wait for them to ask the question before I get hard on them. He knows that their eternal salvation is at stake, that if they don't accept him, they're going to end up in hell. He understands his holiness and his righteousness and that of his father and how that, that means, that demands that he be blunt with them that you just don't beat around the bush with it, and he's direct and he's explicit with them. And he tells them that the rejection of the Son and his authority is what's going to leave them open to judgment. He says, this is you. This is you, and the kingdom, the vineyard, is going to be taken away. It's going to be given to other people, and we see that with the church. It goes on to the Gentiles and so forth. Many commentators call this the final break with Judaism between Jesus and Israel because this is where he passes the judgments like, You've killed all the prophets, you're about to kill the son, and then it's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Now, now the delegation, now they see clearly, and because now they represent, now they understand what Jesus sees them as, how he sees them, they want to arrest them, but because of Jesus' popularity of the crowds, and there being thousands of people around them, they don't want to anger them. Remember, this is all happening. Jesus is teaching. Right? So he's probably maybe slightly elevated or something, but he's teaching, and everyone who he's teaching to, they're seeing this. And probably when the authorities came to Jesus, it probably made the crowd bigger. Because if you know Jesus, the man of the hour who just cleaned house the day before, just got rid of all the money changers and, and those selling the, uh, uh, the sacrificial lambs and so forth, who just did all that, did all the healings, his teaching, and then you see the religious authorities, the man who's been called son of David, people have been praising and you know they're going to converge. It's like watching a train wreck. 
And you're like, let's see what happens. So this crowd is all hearing this. So you can see why they probably didn't want to go ahead and take him right away. Now, there are many within the church who, despite doing the Lord's work, refuse to give God what is his. It's easy for us to read this text, for me to preach about it, and be like, ah, those Pharisees, those chief priests, those elders. But we have to ask ourselves, does this exist today? We must not be blind to think that, no, of course not, it's all fixed. We're not like them. That's exactly what they were thinking. See, that is when the prophets of old from God speak to people through his word. We still have people that do this. They reject the authority of the prophets. They reject the slaves that God has sent to collect fruit. They don't like what they teach. They refuse to listen to the prophets of old. They refuse to change their ways. Now, we might not have anyone in the church or in America who's, who's beating a prophet or stoning anyone of it, but their hypocrisy of trying to reap the blessings of God in their lives without surrendering themselves to him, they are profaning the name of God. And they are, in doing so, they're no better than this delegation here. They are the tenants who are killing the slaves. They are the tenants who had the Son of God taken outside and killed. They are the ones who are rejecting the cornerstone because they refuse to submit to the very authority they pretend to act upon. We have to get rid of this idea that you are, especially as Americans, you are free to be you, that I am free to be me. You are not free to be you, and I am not free to be me. Paul tells us this clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he, that's Christ, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, that's Christ, who for their sake died and was raised. When you take on Christ and you accept his death and you submit to his authority, you don't live for yourself. You've been crucified with him. Coming to faith, following Jesus is not something that's like, yes, now my problems are going to be fixed. I get to do what I want, sow what I want. My problems are going to be taken away. He's going to, that's not it. No, when you come and accept Jesus Christ who he is because it's true, and so like, why wouldn't you? Because it's true and it's rooted in reality. You have to understand that the world's going to reject you. And then in doing so, you are crucified with him, as Paul tells us in Galatians, and you no longer live. It's Christ who lives within you. So you can't just be thinking, as you go about day to day, what do you want to do? What career do you want? How, what movie should you want to watch? What, what do you want to drink tonight? Even what you eat, like how, everything that you do, you have to be asking, what's God's will? What are your eyes set upon, his will or your will? Even with kids, we've got to be careful. Kids, they can distract us easily. What do my children want to do? Well, what's God's will for your children? That's a hard question. You've got to ask yourself those questions. You've got to make sure you're staying focused. And, and don't think, yes, we have plenty. We have so much liberty, praise God, within the Christian faith. We do. We have a lot of liberty. Paul talks about this in Romans 14. We have a lot of liberty, and that's great. But you have to make sure that you're seeking the will of God in your life. And if you're doing that and your conscience is clean with that, great. But you have to ask yourself, just be honest and ask God to help you in that. Am I doing your will? Am I doing what you want to do? Or am I doing what I want to do? Am I doing what 
my parents want me to do. Like, this is where I think a lot of pastors get in trouble. They grow up in church. They're a pastor's kid. They know the Bible, and the church is like, ooh, hey, you should go to seminary. You should be a pastor. But God's not calling them. But just because their dad was a pastor or they love theology, the church pushes them through this train. They go to Bible college, and then they go to seminary, and then they come out, and they take a pastorate. But God has never called them because nobody ever asked them or challenged or they themselves never asked, well, what's God's will? And we wonder why so many pastors get overburdened with, with, with the demands of ministry or, or they fail morally with ministry or they commit suicide because of ministry because they were never called it to begin with, but we assumed it and they assumed it because of the will of the people and not the will of God. So even within the church, it's easy for us to become distracted. What is the will of God in our lives? We have to ask that question. This is why we do life groups. One of the reasons we do life groups. So when you're wrestling with that question, you bring it to the life group. Have them pray over you for it. Have them encourage you, challenge you. It's why my role as a pastor exists, to help shepherd you along that way. It's why the roles of the elders exist, to help shepherd you along those ways. It's why the brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the body that are sitting here today, exists to help you in that journey. Because the world is deceiving, it's tempting, it's seductive, it's easy to get led astray. We need one another, and we need the Spirit to speak through each and every one of us into our own lives, submitting to the authority of God to know his will. So we all have to pray for wisdom and humility, that our eyes will be open, especially if we are currently guilty of this. And if we are not, that he will keep us from going blind. Do not think you stand lest you fall. He will stand with us, Jesus will stand with us, and he will help us, those who are blind in hypocrisy, and he will take the blinds off your eyes. And let us remember that the very stone that crushes and breaks those who reject it Again, it's the very stone that gives us grace, that gives us forgiveness, that gives us eternal life. To those who embrace Jesus Christ, acknowledging who he is, and submitting to his authority in all they do. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. I am personally grateful for it. We all are grateful that you are slow to anger, that your grace is everlasting, that where sin abounds, there is more grace, and that well never runs dry. Help us enjoy this grace. Help us enjoy you. Help us continually go to you daily, recognizing that we can, with boldness, go to you as we confess our sins, and that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us, and that you welcome us into your throne room. That we can enter into you who created all things. You who have authority over all things. That by the blood of your son, we can be cleansed. And we are cleansed. And that even when we trip and stumble and fall, you will welcome us back. Help us live this out. And help us know you more. Help us understand who you are. Draw us to you. Because the joy that we need, Father, is the joy of you. And the good news of the gospel is you want to be with us. That you have reconciled us to you so that you may dwell within us. Help Hope Community Church live this out as a church. 
first as individuals, and then as a church, as a unified body where you are clearly praised, Father. We seek to praise you in all things, and we seek your will in all things, in all of our ministries. Give us wisdom in that regard. Give us, in, in the smallest details, the songs we choose to sing, the words that are spoken up here, uh, how we greet and how we serve one another. Let us seek your will. Help us open up our homes, not just to those who we think are clean and right, but those who are rejected by society, those who many would look upon and not think they would be welcomed in a church, help us welcome them into our homes. Help, them, help us welcome them here at Hope. Help us not be hypocrites, Father. Help us stay away from that. Help us walk that narrow road by your grace and by your wisdom, by the leading of the Spirit, grounded grounded in your word and help us know your word help us understand your word and where we the things that we can't understand father help us have a peace on that issue and in all things father as always may we glorify you by the power of the spirit in the name of your son jesus christ